without any real introduction as to who he is. He assumes his readers know who he is. He needs no introduction. And that would certainly have been the case for James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a great leader in the church at Jerusalem. Second, in the book of James, the writer here shows a great passion for the law, for the law of Moses, and he shows a great passion for peacemaking. And if you look at Acts chapter 15, where James stands up, where you have that synod, basically, the Jerusalem council, um, you see James having that same passion, passion for the law and a passion for peacemaking. And, And there's a few linguistic things that you could look at, too, that similarities between the language in Acts 15 that James uses and the language that's used here in this letter, um, even the, the letter that's to be distributed throughout the churches of Asia Minor. After Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, they write a letter that's to be sent with Paul and Silas to the churches. And how does that letter start out? To the churches, greeting. And so that the, the, what some suggest is that it was actually James who wrote that letter, who, who writes the exact same way here in James chapter 1. Very brief introduction, greeting. Now, from one point of view, it doesn't matter too much who wrote this book of James. We don't need to get hung up on this because we know God is the author of this book. This is inspired scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit and comes to us as the word of God. But from another point of view, it does enrich our understanding to know that it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter. Because when you look back at Jesus' earthly ministry, what you see is that Jesus' brothers were not believers in Jesus at first and, and didn't even show him much respect. In fact, in the first instance where you read of Jesus' brothers in the, in the Gospel of John, you read that his brothers are mocking him. In John 7, verse 3, we read that Jesus' brothers told him that he should go to Jerusalem. Keep the feast. You should go to Jerusalem because if you're a big shot, basically, like this is what they're saying, if you're a big shot, like you say you are, well, isn't Jerusalem the place where you want to be? That's where the big shots go. And then we read John 7, verse 5, for neither did his brethren believe in him. So that's why they talk to him that way. They don't believe in him. In Mark 3, verse 21, we read that when Jesus' ministry began to attract uh, unruly crowds and, and his ministry started to receive the opposition of the Pharisees, his own family members thought that he was going insane. His brothers were embarrassed with him. Their brother is saying all kinds of exaggerated things. I am the bread of life. He that eats me has eternal life, and and he that doesn't drink my blood and eat my flesh has no life in him. And the family doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, and they don't believe. Interestingly, when Jesus is crucified, yes, his mother, Mary, is at the cross, but we don't read of any of his brothers being at the cross when he's crucified. During Jesus' earthly ministry, James is not a believer. But what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, is that after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus specifically appeared unto his half-brother James. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, we read, After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And after that, James rapidly becomes a leader in the church at Jerusalem. 
As I said, in Acts 15, at the end of the Jerusalem Council, James is one who stands up, gives the concluding speech, and his advice is followed by the churches. From history books, from early church history, we read that James was eventually given the name James the Just, or we might say today, James the Righteous. And he was called James the Just, that became his name, because of his personal holiness and righteousness and his passion to promote righteousness in others. And that's exactly what we see in this letter as well, a passion to promote righteousness in others and a love for the law. In James 1 verse 25, James calls the law the perfect law of liberty. The law is the law that gives freedom for you who are in Christ. And then throughout the rest of the letter, he's, giving a, he's expressing a deep concern for the law and righteous living. In chapter 2, verse 10, he writes, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. In chapter 4, verse 17, he writes, to him, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And in chapter 1, verse 22, he writes, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So James has a deep love for righteousness and keeping God's commandments, and yet it's also clear from the letter, from Acts chapter 15 as well, that James does not see the law as the way for a person to merit righteousness with God. No, we obey the law because we've been saved unto good works. Faith shows itself, living faith shows itself in a life of good works. We obey the law because our faith is a faith that brings forth fruit. And I think that's where it's helpful to know that it is James, the half-brother of Jesus, that writes this book. Because right here, in the very life of James himself, you see the gospel. You see a man who was an unbeliever who was rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And then God does and does His gracious work, and God changed his heart. And James was made a believer by the powerful grace of God. And now, as a believer, James appreciates how a person needs to respond to the saving work of Jesus with thankfulness and with a life of worshiping God in obedience. And that's a word for us also this morning and as we go through this book. The question for me, the question for you is, do we know the saving work of Jesus? As James came to know it through God's gracious work. Personally, personally, do I know who Jesus is as the one who suffered and died for my sins, bearing the punishment that my sins deserve? And do I know, do you know, how God has shown me and us His sovereign grace by making us His children and servants? If we do, does the knowledge of that glorious saving work of Jesus Christ work within our hearts a holy, burning jealousy for a life of holiness and righteousness? and doing what God's law prescribes. We know we can't keep God's law perfectly. James knows that too. He, he emphasizes that. 
But do we have a zeal for it? Do we want to keep God's law personally in in the privacy of my own life? Or are we okay with sin in our lives? Are we okay with being a hearer of the word only and not a doer? Are we okay with then deceiving ourselves? No doubt James' own experience of being a believer, being a Jew, right? For that first part of his life. Being righteous by the keeping of the law. And then seeing Jesus as his Savior. James' own experience even worked with him a great zeal for righteousness. He became known as James the Righteous. This is who this James is who writes this letter. But now let's move on. Let's look at the text and let's see what James writes about himself in this text. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is interesting, how he, write, how he begins the letter. James could have written, James the righteous, James the just, the half-brother of Jesus, born from the same womb as our Savior was born from, a witness of the resurrected Savior, prominent leader in the church at Jerusalem, Greetings. But of course, James doesn't do anything like that. Instead, what does he write? He writes, James, a servant. Literally, James, a slave. James, a bond servant. And James is writing in a context where slaves were an ordinary part of life. You had slaves all around you in the Roman Empire. And they were the lowest of the low. And James writes, this is who I am. This is how I identify myself, the slave of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not unique to James. You read Paul, Paul's letters and Peter's letters and Jude. uh, They write this same way, a slave, a doulos, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But this is what these men were glad to confess about themselves, that we belong to Jesus Christ and we are His servants. And I'll think for James, how interesting all of this is for James, because James was the half-brother of Jesus. Children, think of that. James grew up in the same home as Jesus Christ. He had Jesus as his older brother. But James doesn't mention any of those things. He He doesn't even view Jesus here as his relative in the flesh. He's viewing, he's viewing the one that he grew up with, the one who was his older brother, he's viewing him here and referring to him as his Lord, as his master, the one to whom he belongs with body and soul, the one whose command and will is his delight to do. He views Jesus, who he grew up with in the same home, he views Jesus as the one who's ascended into heaven, who's seated at God's right hand, ruling over all things. And he says, Jesus is my Lord. These earthly relationships fade away so that these heavenly spiritual relationships might be more deeply enjoyed. What a radical change James must have gone through in order to see and know Jesus, who had always just been his brother for the longest time, one who was maybe a little crazy, to now see him 
as the Messiah. But that's what he is pleased to emphasize, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures, the prophet, priest, and king that was foreshadowed in all the Old Testament. He is the servant of God, the elect, and he's my Lord, and he's my Savior. And then notice he also writes, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James here is not saying that he has two masters. God is one master and Jesus is a second master. No, but James is really confessing here that Jesus is God. Jesus is God's eternal son. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And James is a servant of Jesus and a servant of God through Jesus. And God and Jesus are one. Because Jesus even said in his earthly ministry, I and my Father are one. And James is expressing that truth here right at the very beginning of this letter. The question we need to ask ourselves as we consider this description that James gives is this. Do we view ourselves as the servants, as the slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then not only that, but do we even take joy in having that designation? Do, do we consciously live? When you're writing a letter, when you're talking, when you're doing your work, do we live consciously in our day-to-day lives seeing Jesus in heaven as our Lord and Master? Just consider, by nature, we are slaves to sin. We're, we're all slaves, we're all servants to something. In Romans 6 verse 17, Paul writes, But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin, but ye have become the servants of righteousness. That's Paul in Romans 6. We were the slaves of sin. And how miserable that bondage was. Walking in darkness. Doing that which was evil. And only bringing more misery upon ourselves through it. In fact, we still feel that misery at times, don't we? When we, when we act like we're still the servants of sin. And we have that inclination to serve sin, and then we serve sin, we make provision for the flesh to satisfy the lust thereof, and then we experience afresh all the misery and the pain and the sin and the death that it brings with it. But the reality is, as believers, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not our own. We belong to Jesus, and that is a joy. You know, to someone coming in who who doesn't know the gospel, that maybe sounds like slavery. And maybe we're inclined to think it would be ideal if we didn't have any Lord over us, right? To have no Lord, to be a Lord unto myself, to, to follow my own commands. But how foolish. Even in chapter 1, James writes, the law of God is the perfect law of liberty, This is what leads you in the the path of joy and light and life. I need Jesus as Lord. His commandments are good. Keeping His commandments is what is right and what is good. Oh, how thankful I am to be His servant. And then the question for us is this. Are we willing to obey? Are we willing to serve Him as our Lord? Am I Are you practicing that pure religion? You know, 
this is the language that James used, but we can apply it in our own way. Have you visited the orphan and widow in their affliction? Are you loving your neighbor? And and however inconvenient that may be. Are you keeping yourself unspotted from the world? That's pure religion. Honestly, with my spouse, with my children, with my fellow church member, my brother or sister, am I honestly pursuing an honest life, living in the truth, walking in the light? That, I call myself a servant of the Lord, and that is serving the Lord. This is important for us as we proceed through the rest of the book. This letter is for those who are slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the context in which James gives and in which we receive all these commandments that that we're going to come across in this letter. Jesus is Lord, and these are His commandments for my life as His servant. So that's who James is. He's the half-brother of Jesus, but more significantly, he is the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question becomes, to whom is James writing? As we get acquainted with this book, who are the recipients of this letter? Well, first of all, notice the title that is given at the beginning of this book. In my Bible, at least, it says, The General Epistle of James. Now, these titles at the beginning of these books, these letters, we don't take those as inspired those were added sometime later. That's the, that's the normal position we take. So it might vary from, from whatever Bible you have. But what that word general is emphasizing, general and a general epistle, is emphasizing that this letter was not written with a specific congregation in mind, like the church at Ephesus or the church at Corinth. And it wasn't written with a specific individual in mind as well, like to Timothy or to Titus. But this letter was written to the churches more generally, a general letter. And that also comes out in how the letter begins. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. It's a general audience that he's writing to. And now the question is, well, what does that language mean, the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad? Well, some would say that James is writing here to Jews, that he's writing to those Jews who were spread out through the world, um, through, through all the history of the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. You remember in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they took the ten tribes and scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire. 586 BC, God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to, to conquer Judah and bring them into captivity. And so many of, God's, many of the Jews are scattered. By the time of the New Testament, there are Jewish populations, even big Jewish populations, in many cities of the Roman Empire. And so some think that James is actually writing to Jews, to Old Testament Jews, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, very Old Testament, very literally. But James is not writing here to Jews, and that's clear when James talks about who Jesus is as Lord and Christ. The Jews would never say that Jesus is the Christ. That's exactly what made them still Jews and not Christians when you come into the New Testament. And in chapter 2, verse 1, 
He uses this language. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respective persons. So he's clearly not writing to unbelieving Jews. Others would say that James is writing here especially to Jewish Christians. Christians who are Jewish in their background. They come from a Jewish, they're converted from Judaism. And I think that that is accurate to say that most, if not all the people to whom James is writing, were of Jewish background. One thing we need to understand about this letter is that although it's found at the very end of the New Testament books, this letter is actually a very early letter when it was written. In fact, it is probably the first piece of New Testament literature that was written. Um, So it's a very early piece of writing. And he's probably writing this letter before the, the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And so at this time, there's probably not many Gentiles who have been converted. So it's, he's, he's writing to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience. And so James is even probably writing this letter to those Christians, Jewish Christians of a Jewish background, who used to live in Jerusalem because that's where the church was early on, just in Jerusalem. But at the time of the persecution that arose with Stephen's death, there was a great scattering. We read that in Acts 8 verse 1. There was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And the saints were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but many Christians were scattered because of the persecution. And then you read a little later in Acts 11, verses 19 and 20, that these Jewish Christians began to spread even further. So not just Judea and Samaria, but we read they even went to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, they went to North Africa, and they went to Antioch. And children, that sounds familiar because Antioch was going to be the center of later missionary activity. So there's that persecution, the church spreads. Also remember, in addition to all of this, in Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost, where there were many Jews, devout Jews from many nations who had come to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Pentecost. And then they come under the preaching of the apostles and the disciples, and we read that 3,000 men were added to the church. And then after the feast, of course, they go back and they carry the gospel with them back to their native lands. So even before Paul's first missionary journey, there were many Christians scattered outside of Jerusalem. And all these Christians, predominantly Jewish Christians, would have had a very, very difficult time of things because they would not have been received back into their Jewish communities, but they would have been rejected and persecuted by their Jewish brothers and sisters. You can read the book of Hebrews. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. And then rejected by the Jews, these Christians would also have been exploited and taken advantage of by the Gentiles. These Christians then would have been homeless. They would have had less standing than slaves. And they became outcasts in their community, religious, social, and economic outcasts. And if you read through the book of James, you'll see that James has a pastoral sensitivity sensitivity towards that reality as well. He's encouraging these saints to be faithful and patient in their afflictions. That's verse 2 right away. 
That's one of his major concerns. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. In fact, many of the recipients of this letter would have been former members of the church in Jerusalem where James was an elder and a leader. And so he still has that pastoral concern as a leader in the church at Jerusalem for these saints that he knows intimately that have fled Jerusalem because of persecution. And so the point is, although James is probably writing to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience, the language that James uses here in verse 1 is not meant to be exclusive language. James is not saying, look, I'm writing only to those who are Jewish Christians, those in their, who have a Jewish background. That's not pers- James' perspective. What he is emphasizing is this. I am writing to all those who are the true Israel of God indeed, the true nation of God. Even though you are now Christians and not Jews, you are still the people of God. You are the true Israel indeed. In fact, all the blessings and privileges that the Old Testament Israel enjoyed, they now belong to the Christian church. So he's using language that's familiar to to his audience, and he's using that language to refer to the church of the New Testament. And you have that throughout the New Testament. Um, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, we are the circumcision. Uh, That circumcision is that not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Uh, Acts 7, Stephen refers to the church in the wilderness. And in Galatians 6, Paul writes the Israel of God. He's referring to the church. So you have this similar language throughout the New Testament. And what James is also emphasizing is this. Not just you are the people of God, but he's emphasizing you are still part of the church. Even though you've been scattered throughout the world, and, and this is a new experience for those who have a Jewish background. Even, you know, who are Christians, but you're scattered. You're still part of the church. The church is one, and you are part of that church. Some of you are rich, and some of you are poor. Some of you are living in peace. Many of you are living in great affliction. You maybe have all kinds of different cultural backgrounds, yet you are all, as believers in Jesus, the people of God, and members of the universal church, members of the 12 tribes of Israel, spiritually speaking. You are the covenant people of God. And what a comfort that must have been to these recipients to hear, to be reminded of that again. They're scattered, they're far away from Jerusalem, and yet they know they're still part of the church. They're part of God's people no matter where the Lord leads them. And And they're even still enjoying the pastoral care of one of the leaders in the church at Jerusalem that they know so well and they know cares for them. James does not forget about them, but he writes to them with love and care. What a comfort this language is for us also. We are part of the 12 tribes scattered abroad also. Spiritually, we are the children of Abraham. We are believers. We are the circumcision. We are that chosen generation, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, the peculiar people. That's how God addresses us in this letter. God is our covenant God, and we are His covenant people, His servants, His friend servants, and He is our friend sovereign. 
So who are the recipients of this letter? Well, especially Jewish Christians, but then, of course, all Christians. This letter is given by God in His Word for us today, too, of course. And that becomes obvious also when we look briefly at the message contained in this letter. We've touched on this in the course of the sermon already, especially in the introduction. We'll see this as we dive into this letter. The message is this. As those who are Christians, as those who are part of the church, live in righteousness. You know your doctrine. Make sure it follows through in your life. Faith without works is dead. Pure religion is this, not an outward show. But love your neighbor from the heart. Keep yourself, in your, in the, especially in the privacy of your own inward life, keep yourself away from sin. As I said earlier, the letter emphasizes the law of God. There are many commandments in this letter. And the question maybe even comes, where is the gospel in this letter? I want to hear the gospel, the good news. Well, the gospel comes through in especially two ways. First, you are the people of God. That's that's the starting point. Chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You are believers in Christ. That's the gospel. Jesus is your Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord. Jesus is your Lord. That's the gospel. And that's the assumption made throughout the letter. And then second, the gospel is also this. And this is a second main theme of the letter. God gives more grace. Chapter 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace. You have to live unto Jesus your Lord. You know what pure religion is. Whoever keeps the whole law and offends in one part is guilty of all. Press on towards righteousness. See your sin. Humble yourself. And then remember, he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. And so one of the main messages of the book, and I think it's very good for us, is this. Humble yourselves. You are a sinner. You can't keep God's law. You need God's grace. You need Jesus. So the letter drives us to Jesus with all the commandments it gives. And then the book also emphasizes, as a Christian who knows the grace of God, you have the calling to keep His commandments now too. And for this, God gives you more grace. All around, you need grace. So be humble. Don't tolerate sin in your lives. Be a holy people unto the Lord. And he gives more grace. So what's the purpose of the book of James? To promote a life consistent with faith in Christ the Lord. To promote a life. To promote a life, a way of living that is consistent with faith in the Lord Jesus. True heirs of the kingdom of heaven live like the friends of God not having friendship with the world. Genuine believers order their lives under the will and word of the Lord. And when they fail, they repent and plead for grace, and God gives them more grace. May that be the message that's promoted in our lives also as we study this book, that we live 
Because this is what we want. We live a life more and more consistent with faith in the Lord Jesus. That we do truly live as the friends of God. That we do order our lives under the word and will of God. And when we sin, we repent. And we look to the Lord. And we experience His mercy and His grace. And and so it keeps going through and through our lives to the glory of His holy name. As he will write in chapter 4, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee for thy word. Thy word is truth. And we thank Thee for the perspective we have as we open this new letter and we begin our study of it, that we are Thy children and servants, and Thou art our Lord and Savior, and Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Bless us now in the study of this book. Give us to be spiritually excited about uh, this opportunity, not just to grow in knowledge, but to grow in the maturity of faith. And we pray that we might be an encouragement to each other in this exercise also. To thy name's glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.